0: Welcome, everyone, to this special podcast about The Advice Gap. I'm Ollie Smith, Magazine Editor at New Model Advisor, and today I will be your host uh, for Proceedings. Joining me to discuss a major report into The Advice Gap by Octopus Investments is the company's CEO, Ruth Hancock, along with a smorgasbord of advice experts. Among them is James Priday, Managing Director of Extra Business, Pridis. Uh, James is also the, fan- the founder and chief executive of P1 Investment Management and has a lot to say about the technology side of these things. Uh, Educating the next generation of financial advisors is always going to be a big part of the conversation too. So to that end, we have two people with us to share some insight into that. Claire Limon is Director of Learning and Acquisition at the Open Work Network. And Rohan Sivajoti will be familiar to many of you as Director at Financial Planning Business Postcard Planning in Darlington, but also uh, as one of the faces uh, behind Next Gen Planners. Um, In this episode, we'll also address the sale and consolidation of advice businesses. Uh, So to that end, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Alan Marks the Managing Director of Mergers and Acquisition Advisory Business, Harrison Spence, which has assisted dozens of businesses either selling up or looking to buy. Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining. Really, really great to see you all. Um, It's a bit of a chilly day today, so I can see that you're all wrapped up warm. Um, I'd like to start by giving Ruth the floor first to sort of explain some of the findings from Octopus's latest gap report. Um, But if you wouldn't mind, Ruth, I'm particularly interested in the news that advice. Is as a turning away clients now more than ever. Why is that and, and why is it that you think that the advice gap is an opportunity as much as a burden?
1: Yeah, thanks very much. So, um, you know, I think we'd all agree, particularly at the moment in the middle of a global pandemic, that money is pretty stressful. A lot of people get up in the morning feeling feeling quite unhappy about how they make financial decisions. And so I'm always shocked to find that we have a market that doesn't quite meet the need that people have for help in making financial decisions. So one of the things we found in putting this report together is that right now, 60% of advisors have said that they've turned away clients in the last year, which is pretty remarkable. And now that might be because those clients aren't right for their business and that people are, you know, doing exactly the right thing and saying, um, I don't think we offer the service you need. But actually a lot of advisors I speak to just say, my practice is full. I've got enough clients. Um, and it's unusual, I think, to find an industry where, frankly, market economics hasn't closed that gap. And there are still people who find that they can't get access to a financial advisor. Mm. So you look at that problem and then you say, well, you know, maybe it'll get better. And then you talk to advisors, and six in 10 of them say that they're planning to retire in the next 10 years. Um, and most people say that there aren't enough people coming into the industry to close that gap so you're looking at an existing advice gap that is um, pretty much everyone would agree going to get bigger um, so you know we at Octopus um, it can kind of see this happening we talked about it last year we're talking about it again this year because actually I don't think the market is responding to close this gap as quickly as it needs to to make sure that people can still access to the advice and help they need to manage their finances
0: yeah and and ruth i'm come on to some of the issues you've mentioned there but what's octopus's stance on you know the regulatory burden on firms because i'm sure that will come up in our conversation but you know lots of advisors seem to be disgruntled by rising fees, the pressure uh, you know on the FSCS, and they feel penalized that they're trying to do the right thing and yet costs just keep going up and up and up and they, they all know and say the same thing, which is that eventually clients will end up shouldering you know that that increase in fees. What's octopus's stance on that, and have you undertaken any kind of lobbying or communication with the regulator about that as a specific burden?
1: Yeah, I definitely don't discount that as a burden. I think every advisor I speak to, when you ask them what's top of their concerns, it's regulation and it's PI insurance um, yeah. continues to be an issue. Again, in the, in the PI area, it's, it's unusual that the market hasn't closed that gap, that there are so few insurers operating in that space that people there's not sufficient competition, I don't think, for people to get a good price. Yeah. Um, I think the, you know, how do you solve that? I think there is a general um, efficiency challenge for many advice businesses that mean operating costs are going up, not down. So the way I tend to think about it is how do you solve that efficiency problem using technology primarily um, in order that you can still run an efficient and effective business, even though, you know, regulation will always change. There will always be a burden upon financial services to keep up with it. Um, mm-hmm. The cost of doing business I think so I tend to approach it and how can you make sure that the rest of your business runs as smoothly as possible so that you have the management headspace to be able to respond to that regulatory challenge.
0: Yeah Um, I'm going to come on to Alan just in a second to ask about you know why it is that people are selling up but um, just wanted to check with James and Rohan I mean have you got experience of turning away clients I mean does that leave you with a kind of guilty feeling in your stomach? Rohan do you want to just give us a few lines on that?
2: um so we have a bit of a thing that we we always want somebody to leave with something so even if it's a bit of a nudge in the right direction a bit of content that we can aim them towards perhaps if they aren't right with the with our our firm as such um we're we we are one of those that ruth just spoke about who are at capacity at the moment and trying to to um deal with that capacity issue that we have um but I, I just feel that we have a bit of we have a bit of a duty, really, a, a bit of a, a societal duty in terms of like we have decent learnings, we have decent jobs, and mm. um, as, as much as we can sort of pay forward to anybody who comes to our doorstep, um, that that's going to mean a, a, an awful a, an awful lot to them. And yes, if it uses a, a, a bit of our time, uses a bit of our time. Um, but that's just no great loss at all. Um, so anything solution-wise that does help close the advice gap to always really keen on um, because more people need help and mm. it's, just, it's, just, it's just kind of great to see some of these innovations coming through now.
0: Mm. James, have you turned away clients? Are you at Capacity, are You in that group of people? We, we have
3: done. So obviously I'm sort of here with two hats on. Um, yeah, so- sure. On the financial planning side, we we, we have done, what it has done is it's forced us to look at a deeper level of uh, client segmentation um, to ensure we've got much more defined buckets that clients can fall into when they first come to the firm. Mm -hmm. Because we we don't really want to have to turn away anyway. And the work we've been doing there in my own financial planning business has come to the fore in the last six to nine months, particularly working with my P1 hat on actually speaking to firms about helping them better segment their client base. Um, so I think a lot of people put for, uh, clients into two or three buckets. They're now starting to look at, from what we've seen, five or six buckets, where you've actually got clients with very simple requirements. And generally, the reason they're being turned away is not necessarily that firms are at capacity. It's just they can't deal with them in an operationally efficient manner. And it's generally the upfront client onboarding stuff, which is is where... where I think technology can really help those firms address and retain more of those clients. And actually, without necessarily having to take on more staff, increase the width of the types of uh, clients they can deal with.
0: Sure. Um, Don't let me forget, I want to ask you later on about, you know, the efficiency of onboarding, because there's been some very interesting work on that in the last year and some more um, upcoming. Um, Just to come on to Alan. Alan, when people approach you to... Uh, potentially sell their business or to put themselves uh, in the market to buy one. I mean, what are they saying in terms of the motivations there? Is it, is it everyone just saying, you know, I'm sick of the, the, you know, the faff of running a business, the regulatory costs, but also has there, I suppose, been a, a knock on effect from coronavirus and the furloughing scheme of people flocking to you for those reasons too? Thanks, Ali.
4: I, I firstly would say that, um, uh... We talk to clients on our consultancy side about overcapacity and we hear it all the time as well. Mm -hmm. And it is about inefficiencies and they're busy. But what we call busyness, they're busy doing so much other stuff other than just doing client work, which is what most advisors would like to do. And it is getting that breakdown in their business and using technology and other things to work smarter. That in the first place is every advisor's problem in all sides of businesses um, and what uh, Jamie just said about segmenting your clients better is really true. I mean, we we stress that really hard with them. When they come to, when an advisor comes to us to bar, uh, to sell, buyers are of all size. You know, they're mm. from the local one man IFA through to the multinational consolidators that we've all heard of. Mm. But they want to just grow their books, and they want, they have advisors in the bigger firms. They have advisors who they want to feed, and in the small firms, they want to grow because growing organically is tougher for them. Um, especially in the current market where you can't get out and network and meet people. Sellers tend to fall into two camps. The first camp is, I've just had enough. I've had enough of everything and I just want to sell and I want to retire. Mm. And there is a large population of IFAs who are over the age of 60, 65 and older who now it has just driven them out of the business. And they're looking quite often for buyers who are the smaller buyers who they feel they can put their clients with. Um, and, you know, we specialize in doing that marriage of, you know, buyer and seller, the cultural fit is important. There are also a lot of people, and I would say 50% of the deals we're doing at the moment are sellers who just don't want to get stuck in the glue anymore. The compliance, the HR manager, the property manager, the everything else that they have to do other than being an advisor. And they actually aren't looking to retire at all. They're looking to sell and move into an organization and take the asset, you know, the value of their asset off the table now, but continue working under a new environment where they do just what they really want to do, which be an advisor.
0: Mm-hmm. And
4: that is a big change from you know twenty thirteen when we had lots of people exiting from you know the industry profession at that time now there are really two sorts of, of seller it's the one who wants to retire and you know hand over his client over a period of a year or less or not slightly longer two years whatever and then there's those people who actually do not want to leave the industry but they set up a business to do the right thing for their clients and now find that they spend more time doing what they don't
0: want to be doing mm. Okay. Um, Claire, you've been waiting very patiently there. I want to ask you a very specific question about networks, um, which is that for those people who are facing that big, big decision of whether to sell or not, and they perhaps feel a little bit uneasy about it, um, do you think that there's something that networks should be doing there to kind of attract um, new members, old and young, to essentially? Take some of that burden off their shoulders and say, "Here's a way of advising," but just in a in a different way.
5: Hi, Ollie, and hi everyone. Um, yes, I do, um, and we're definitely working in that space. So um, we are talking to small businesses um, who are doing um, just what you know we've had described. Um, where they want to join our network, but kind of offload the regulatory and PI concerns. So we've got a number of those we're talking to. And and since we've been speaking to those, we've worked up kind of a blueprint of um, what information we can give them, what they want to know, um, so that now it, it's more efficient for us in being able to get that to them early, um, for them to um, have a clearer process, if you like, about what you know, what it will mean and how they make the change. Um, for individuals as well I mean we are trying to make sure that we're just explaining to you know younger generations what what we do and what this industry is about Mm. because I think one of the biggest challenges we've got um, is that people don't recognize this industry as a career and yet once you're in it and you know I can speak for myself in this it's a brilliant career to have Um, So it's an education um, to drive the numbers, um, which, you know, we've been really successful at doing over the last couple of years, but I think there's an awful lot more that we all need to do.
0: Mm. Rohan, you've done a lot of work um, in the last couple of months preparing a blast off program um, to encourage people to set up good small financial planning businesses, haven't you? Um, You know, how's that going? And and can you, talk the panelists and audience through a little bit more of the thinking behind that
2: yeah sure thing um so actually launched yesterday there you go so the first first uh, cohort 10 started yesterday so these are 10 people and and we've now got a program in place to help them basically go through things like network or directly authorized etc etc make all of the all of the decisions to accelerate the growth of their firm essentially so kind of an accelerator for um Small uh, financial planning businesses. Um, Just, just touch on something that Claire said there as well around us all having to do a bit more to um, promote financial planning as as a career. Completely agree. Um, I know, obviously, that new model advisor have kindly covered our boot camps at universities as well, which have been Mm. really good, which which have gone down really well, and probably a a little bit of exclusive here for you all as well. Announcement to come on that that will be in over 40 or 50. I think it's about 45 universities next year and um, Which we've just agreed a deal on and to promote financial planning as a career So these are these these are these debut camps We put a load of employers in the room with the best students that universities pick put them through quite a testing day And um, where they end up doing presentations and all, all, all the like, but have been highly highly successful so far the first one at Manchester met They whittled down from 70 to 16 and um, and all 16 got interviews and su- such was the quality of of the candidate so we we want to do our bit and do more to promote it as a genuine career option because i i just don't feel that people people still realize So just like claire said that you know ev- everyone sort of wants to be an accountant or a solicitor or whatever it is and knows the paths for those things and um, but just don't know that this is a, a great career that is flexible it pays well and it's highly rewarding work like um who, who
0: doesn't want that? I think um, there's very, very good point. I think we'll come on to, um, you know, learning in just in a couple of minutes. But I'd really like to ask a little bit more about those big advice businesses, Rohan, and, and indeed to everyone else, um, because it strikes me that there are accusations sort of flying around the room about sausage factory scale um, at big advice businesses. But I wondered whether there's actually you know, a kind of moral case um, to keep the big advisors in the picture because they, you know, they have some clout and they have the resources to, um, you know, fund academies and um, potentially lower their prices. <laughs> I'm not sure how that would work in practice, but um, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Perhaps, James, would you be willing to, to talk about that?
3: Um, what, so you're asking me about big, big firms and their, their role to play.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of people so sort of saying, you know, so sort of skepticism about the, role of larger advice businesses in the industry but we know from a certainly from a regulatory perspective that they shoulder a lot of the burden of things like the fscs but also that they have the resources to fund people coming into the industry i'm talking you know sjp's academy quilters academy we can see other businesses going the same way so you know it sounds like the industry is trying to strike this balance between, you know, doing good for existing clients and also trying to set itself up for the future. And I'm wondering how much of, you know, that it belongs to large businesses. How much of a role should they play?
3: Well, I mean, to be honest, I think everybody's part of the, the whole sort of ecosystem of it, and everybody's got their role to play. And I think, um, to be honest, you generally find that there's, there's two quite distinct approaches from people that are running smaller firms. They've got a different way of looking at life and how they're operating their business. I think, as uh, Alan said, you get, you get guys that they really are passionate about the financial planning on the ground. So maybe that's the focus for them as an individual and take away the burden of, of some other stuff. However, they can be great mentors for people that are entering the industry, um, then again, as you said, the bigger firms they've clearly got the, the the resources they've they've got the manpower to actually make a much potentially a much bigger difference to attract people to the industry so and then I think once people are attracted to the industry, then they can start to look down the road so say an individual leaving a university there's two there, there's potentially two different types of individual generally they look towards bigger firms they look at themselves going to somewhere with a career but i think the role that the smaller firms can play is actually showing them there is a different route into financial services and that they could join a smaller firm, maybe regionally, that has got somebody at the top that's been a financial planner all their life and they can, they can be a great mentor for these people individually to come into. So there's a role to play for everybody. I, don't think, uh, I think everybody working together um, is, is the best the best solution for all. I don't think there's just the bigger players to be doing it with just the smaller players. I think what NextGen are doing, to be honest, I've never interacted with NextGen, but having a look at the website this morning, um, they're clearly uh, making a big impact by by grouping firms together to create that resource and create that sort of mentorship that can have a big impact. Do
0: you, feel, I, do you feel like there's some sort of need for overall leadership in pulling together lots of different stakeholders and perhaps a need for a task force of some kind?
3: Absolutely. As, as I think, again, touching on Alan's point, I think a lot, particularly the smaller firms, they're, they're, they're wrapped up in client stuff and they're wrapped up trying to manage their business, negotiate the regulation, the changing environment, the PI and all of that sort of stuff. But actually having some sort of task force that makes it easier to interact and have an impact in this area, I think, uh, yeah, as I think next gen are doing, I think, yeah, that's a, that, that's a great thing to do.
0: Okay, so um, let's come on to the, um, you know, the learning and development side, because, um, you know, Ruth, young people form, you know, quite a large part of your theory that the advice gap can be a business economic and economic opportunity, you know, not just for small firms, but I suppose for, you know, communities and you know, economies across the, across the UK generally. Um, what would you say to firm owners that are sort of nervous of hiring and nervous of, um, you know, funding professional development for young people for fear that perhaps the moment they get their diploma or the moment they get to a certain point that they'll just, they'll try and go off to another firm?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And I think the um, the first thing I'd say is that every small business in every industry has that dilemma. So this is not something that's exclusive to financial advice. Any small business hiring mm. um, hiring people early in their careers thinks about this. And in the vast majority of cases, you can see that the benefits outweigh the risks. If you have kind of faith and belief that you can create a brilliant working environment and a brilliant career path for someone so you have to put yourself in the shoes of that individual and say what would make them want to stay with my firm in the long term that Mm. might be your mission that might be about how you invest in them that might be about the culture of your organization might be about the flexibility of the promotion paths the way you compensate them just as any company would thinking about employee retention you would need to think about all of those things but You know, I can tell you clearly I I don't run a financial advice firm, but I I do run a firm with um, many people who join at the beginning of their careers. And if you think through all of those things, you get an incredibly loyal, diverse workforce that want to stay with you and help you build your business. And I just don't think um, financial advice is any different. I've also heard some brilliant quotes from advisors who have done it saying that it opens up a completely new set of clients for them. So you know, there's, a, there's what I think is a slightly misheld belief that the clients are always looking for the advisor that's been there, done that. Actually, I've heard quite a few say the brilliant thing about having an advisor early in their career is you know they're going to be your advisor in the long term. They're not going to retire in five years and pass yeah. it on to the next person. Um, and you will, there will be a segment of your client base, whether that's beneficiaries of existing advised clients for whom that's a really compelling proposition and can actually add. Angle to your business commercially that you might be completely ignoring at the moment. So, I guess my my overall advice: think about the opportunities um, and think about the career paths. And actually, I I think it's a risk
0: worth taking. Do you think it's worth arguing as well that you know if you have a a culture that's more appropriately pivoted to a, a kind of younger and younger work, workforce with a sort of sustainable people plan for decades rather than just years that it makes it easier to sell and more attractive to a seller later on as well
1: i think that's entirely true you have a more you know you have a set of customers that you think are going to stay with you for the long term you probably have a beneficiary strategy frankly and you know this may be a gross generalization you probably have a workforce that understand efficiency and technology better and i think that is the key to um valuable advice firms in the future if you have a set of Mm. people digitally native who get out of bed in the morning thinking how do I automate this task then of course you're building a more valuable business because everyone across your firm is thinking like that rather than you siloing it into some sort of tech lead who is trying to solve every problem at once
0: that's okay you work. I can see um I can see Alan you're nodding your head there um hopefully in agreement what what are your thoughts on that?
4: I totally agree with what Ruth was saying there. First of all, the big problem for small firms, everybody should help on this at every level. When I was an advisor, you know, was an advisor for the majority of my career, we used to bring in graduates and also uh, people on a sandwich course in financial services who would have a gap year and we'd get the great benefit out of them. Some came back after their degree, some didn't. But the real value, there's I think now 18 universities offering financial services degree, Small firms should go after it, but they do need to have a career path. And because they're not trained in the corporate world, they don't know what that means, but they need to learn it because the youngsters coming to them want that. That's what they want. Um, And it does add massive value having young advisors or young people, as Ruth said, they have a totally different attitude towards solving problems. They don't throw money at it. They use technology to think a way around it. And they actually understand new technology quicker. They're playing with it all the all the time so they they want to help the business and they really do invest their time in it in fact i'm working with a firm at the moment where the ceo is so chuffed because two members of staff came to them halfway through covid with ideas how they could do more even working remotely and they'd worked on it themselves in their own time they have a different attitude and this attitude that millennials are lazy and want millions of pounds straight away, is just not true. And, and they are so keen, and, they, and the ones who come in don't have a pre-disposition uh, of, well, we've always done it that way. No, let's work out a way of doing it. And you have a real asset when you bring young people in. And I totally agree with Ruth, it is down to all sides of firms to do it. Large firms, yes, they have their academies, and that will be beneficial to the professional industry overall, because they're just going to churn out advisors. The good ones will always be good, and the bad ones will fall by the wayside, to be honest, you know, or they'll stick in a role which doesn't suit anybody else. But small firms have to learn how to engage with these people. And the mentor point that Ruth and, and James said are so keen. These people have done it, so they can see, and they can see the success. Most advisors are, have done well financially so they can see what's in it for them. And if they stay around, they're also an exit uh, model for that uh, advisory firm. You know, you bring enough young people through, they're gonna to wanna to buy you out. This whole thing about employee ownership trust, which we see a lot of press on at the moment, is just true, it works, bring the people through. But if you do want to sell and you've got a great team of young people there, absolutely far more valuable than a firm where you, your support staff are all the same age as you, and everybody's looking to exit and retire, it has less value to the the mind. Mm. So there's lots of reasons for having young people.
0: Claire, what do you think of that?
5: Sorry, Ollie, didn't you? Yeah,
0: go on, no, I was going to come to you. So um, so by all means, go ahead.
5: Thank you. Um, So um, we're lucky in that obviously we have the size um, and do have an academy, but um, we started that in 2014 and we have really ramped it up in the last couple of years. But certainly the points that Ruth was describing um, around retention and the risk of losing keeping 98% of our people um, and that's you know, six years in. Um, our average age is in the early 30s and we've got almost 40% now are female. Um, so it's really helping diversity and inclusion for us as well. Um, so I don't think um, retention is our issue at all. The, the biggest learning that I've personally found from running the academy has been actually the focus solely on exams isn't the right focus. Um, gaining diploma and chartered is it takes a lot of work and, and revision and study, but actually it's more about the mentoring point is more about how we can give um, these younger people the soft skills and the confidence um, and the understanding of this industry and and what clients want, et cetera. Um, And we spend an awful lot more time in our academy now doing that, giving them those soft skills um, in a real um, structured program to make sure that they hit the ground running when they start Um, We are about as well to launch a graduate programme. So you'll see that in the next few days, because um, that's a bit that we've been missing. And um, I think there'll be big advantage for us bringing in a group of graduates for all the reasons around technology and, um, you know, um, fresh thinking, etc, that they'll bring. Um, So, yeah, I mean, agree with all the points that have been made and um, we're doing our bit. I think the difficulty from my perspective for a smaller firm is generally around cash flow and it distracts them from their day to day business, which is difficult if they're bringing somebody on. And that's the beauty of the academy because we support the cash flow. Um, so we'll fund the exams for the individuals um, and the learning so that actually when they get to the firm they can start seeing clients and driving revenue straight away Um, whereas for a very small firm if they're doing that on their own then they've obviously they need to fund those individuals and that's where I find it's more difficult especially if the individuals are wanting to be employed
0: um rohan i know that you run like quite a unique uh ship at postcard and you've got sort of an interesting culture particularly surrounding handing staff responsibility for their own pay and you know they decide you know when they can go on holiday and stuff like that are you almost are you surprised at all that hasn't caught on more i mean it seems like still quite a unique thing to be doing but do you suspect that you know with the rise of remote working and stuff that that will become more popular in smaller businesses as people as employers learn to trust their staff more do you think that'll be more appealing to young people
2: so as sort of ruth and claire touched on um, i think i think there is often this fear of people um investing in investing in staff and then the moving on and that kind of thing i've got i've got kind of two challenges to that one is like what happens if you don't invest in them and they stay they're just rubbish <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and the second one is, is that essentially like, like, like make your business a place for people to stay in. It, and it is, it is, it is about culture. And um, so yeah, some of the, some of the benefits are place on uh, unlimited holidays, work when you want from where you want. And um, after, after two years, you can pick your own pay as well. And um, so, because everybody's involved with the business and there's shares around the business and uh, uh, all, all this kind of thing. And, um, but I, th- I find with those kind of things, it's very difficult for somebody to move on actually it's it's very very difficult for somebody to find somewhere that has those those kind of benefits and that kind of stuff um so it helps us retain people um, which is just absolutely great and it isn't it isn't um not isn't, isn't just just sort of me saying this I think three great examples actually during lockdown um and and i will I will, I will name the firm as well pa- paradigm Norton, and emery little and cooper parry wealth so three of the um, leading lights I believe when it comes to culture and um, within financial planning have all picked up hires from other firms um, mm. throughout lockdown and I think that kind of says it all about those firms really they are attracting the best talent and talent doesn't leave there very often and it's because of the quality of their culture and the quality of their business now there have been some challenges around that saying that okay but, but, but they're big firms and people want to join big firms and um, I know for a fact that those firms that culture became before they were big, culture is what made them big. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, that like this this huge focus on culture, now, especially in, in in this world where we're not having this great amount of human human interaction, etc., um, just needs to be doubled down on. Um, it's, it's 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 absolutely huge. It's, it's it's more important than it ever has been.
0: Mm. Um, just wanted to ask Alan again about business value I mean the point about coronavirus and sort of the way in which people have been separated into you know their little remote working bubbles I mean that's taken I think such an emphasis away from this idea of you know your business as a four-wall bricks and mortar entity and into something um, you know whose success is dependent on people and, and culture and attitude what are your thoughts on that and on what Rohan's just said
4: I can agree with Rohan more. The value in a business it is all about the culture. When, when someone's looking to sell, it's all about the cultural fit with the company that they'll go to. It's not about price. You've got to have a cultural fit between the two companies, otherwise the deal is going to not work. So that's the primary thing anyway. When we're doing consultancy with companies, either just straight-off consultancy or if we're working with them before they sell them, we ask them, what's your com- company's culture? The most common comment we will hear is, well, we don't have one. And the answer to that is, no, you don't, you don't know what it is, and you're not in control of it.
0: Mm. And that's
4: the truth. And when, they, when a company does know its culture and understand its culture and understand the, the way the people work, as Ropan said, he's absolutely right, people work so much better together. And they are the firms which have, during lockdown, seen no change. In fact, it has improved. Uh, business has been... You know, buoyant for them, clients have relied upon them during COVID. You know, it has been a big thing for clients. You know, all aside from the businesses we're talking about today, their clients really needed them. And those who had embraced uh, technology and were able to communicate with all their clients quickly and have a really good, strong culture within it, their teams have actually benefited from it. Mm. But very young, there has been a problem. The one thing we know that is millennials, one of the people I'm mentoring myself, said to me, I just want a hug from someone. I'm sat in my flat all day long on my own and I don't see anyone. And I could understand that. If she was 22 and she just felt very isolated. That is one problem. But I did actually manage to speak to one of her colleagues and say, she's feeling isolated, deal with it. And they did straight away. So it's beneficial um, and it is the companies with the culture that will definitely be the better businesses when this is all over and we go back to whatever new normal is the strength of the culture is absolutely where people will want to work will want to be with you know, people talk about it they'll say i work at a great firm and that just is
0: beneficial for everybody mm. i'm just going to pivot the conversation directly back to the um, you know the advice gap issue now and talk about technology and efficiency um, I think there was some research last year from next wealth next wealth that suggested at least that the, you know, the onboarding process is the most inefficient and, you know, utterly frustrating part of bringing on new clients, uh, for advisors. And, um, you know, much of that as advisors know, will be down to, you know, provider slowness and inefficiency. I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about that. And um, James, what are the specific challenges, um, you know, that, that firms have in this arena and, and how can technology improve life?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, obviously traditionally the onboarding process is incredibly paper-based and I think it still is with quite a few firms, um, but by using just a little bit of technology, things become very efficient very quickly, uh, electronic anti-money laundering uh, uh, information that you can collect. Um, even things like electronic PDFs to collect that, find information that can, that can filter into systems. And um, then obviously you talked about providers then, obviously there's, there's, there's two things here I think we're talking about. There's, there's things that the advisor firm can control um, in terms of information gathering. Then there's things that they, they sometimes can't control, which is when they've got to provide information to the provider. Um, I think very quickly, um, when people start to look at their process efficiency in their firms, which I don't think many advisory firms do when they're looking at the process, how they actually operate and how they onboard clients. I think it is still something that advisor firms don't really think about that much, the process. Forget about technology. looking at the process of how they onboard um, a firm as soon as firms do that and they just note down what they currently do they can quite quickly start to see efficiencies they can embed on that onboarding process quite quickly and they can see that there's some off-the-shelf solutions that they can they can put in play very quickly such as Electronic signatures and that sort of stuff to get get client agreements signed and to get letters of authority signed and that sort of stuff. That that stuff is an easy step that I think most firms should be should be looking at. And there are some consultancy firms around that firms can speak to that will help them do that quickly. So I think that's 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 a big step that firm, firms can take and that they should be taking. Um, it would take quite a lot of that onboarding burden away. Um, the next thing is then providing information to, to the providers. Um, obviously, this, the, the thing about being an independent financial provider, uh, a planner, is that you're dealing with a lot of different providers. So you've got a lot of different systems to try to work with, different processes that you've got to try to work with and, and embed in, in the way that you do things, which is the much more difficult thing for a financial planning firm to have an impact on. And that's where the providers really have to start stepping forward to to have very clear processes, electronic processes that allow firms to transact their advice very quickly. And I think that's gonna be the biggest impact for me on closing the advice gap. When things can be done very quickly, uh, efficiently, and transactions can happen um, uh, in an electronic format, you can suddenly start to look and say, okay, well, it doesn't cost me that much to onboard and uh, implement some advice, it costs me a third of that or half of that that's when suddenly you can start to look at those smaller clients
0: Mm.
3: Ruth your thoughts
1: I completely agree I think it's um you know I remember when I first started talking about technology everyone's like oh no are you suggesting that computers are going to replace humans don't you realize financial advice is all about the kind of emotional and um is about the person connection it's completely true and I think that it's led a lot of people down um a bit of a dead end to assuming that technology has no place. Technology has a massive place. Someone told me the other day that um, that someone in their team spends 80% of their time rekeying between systems. I mean, any business where that is the case, there is a huge efficiency opportunity and that just doesn't need to run counter to what we all know is important about advice, which is person to person contact. You can run a brilliantly efficient business, um, that frankly allows people and advisors to spend more time with clients than less. I think, um, you know, we talked about it at the beginning of the conversation, the biggest risk, the reason a lot of people want to leave the firms they're in, is they don't get to offer advice anymore, they get Mm. to um, worry about regulation and worry about efficiency and effectiveness. If, um, if you have a firm that runs more efficiently, you get to spend more time with people. and, And that's frankly what most people want to do.
0: Claire, what's your stance on this? Um, does open work have you know plans to you know expand technology offerings for you know member firms
5: yeah so um, I agree with everything that's been said we're um, currently deploying a um, new system that helps with client um, data mining it's a, a primarily a CRM system um, and that's a huge rollout for us that's underway now and will conclude next year um, But I think the main point I'm hearing here and I completely agree with is around uh, kind of back to basics and making sure the basic processes are Only work where the process itself is actually um, clear and we can see the role that technology can play within it. Mm. And so our strategy currently is very much focused on that about how we, you know, remove any kind of dual keying and inefficiencies in onboarding clients and indeed onboarding um, recruits to make sure that technology is just making us more effective. because our processes are sound and up-to-date mm. uh, so yeah I, I mean I agree but I certainly um, don't think we'll be looking to replace the face-to-face um, environment and especially now uh, you know the, the interviews are being conducted virtually and the feedback from that is really really strong in that you know clients can be anywhere appointments can be any time Um, So the flexibility that brings from using and, and, you know, being forced into this um, technology with um, the COVID shutdown has actually really helped us to um, drive this change a lot more quickly and embrace it in a lot more positive way.
0: Alan, when um, people come to you perhaps looking to sell, do you ever feel like they haven't spent enough time upping their technology game and that they could do more to make the business somewhat more attractive.
4: Um, Yeah, I totally agree with that statement. In the last five years, we've sold a large number of businesses, but only two stick out as companies who would use technology to the fullest. One of them never filled in a fact find in the client meeting, always would ask the clients to log into their system, Mm -hmm. fill in the fact find, have a free flow page of what they felt their issues were, but they weren't the driver, you know, they would be able to have the data, be able to have that. So when they did their first meeting, which was pre-COVID, you know, all done on Zoom first meeting, they knew exactly what the client situation was. And I remember when I first met them, I said, does everybody do that? They said, we've got COOs of top 50, 100 companies as clients, we've got little old ladies as clients. They love it because we're not wasting their time they're happy to give that data, they're used to doing it because whether they do it for their car insurance or home insurance, they're happy to infill that data if they feel secure with the person they're interacting with. They'll Mm -hmm. do the technology part, and that business sold for a substantially greater value because they had more data on their clients than any other IFA and were able to mine that data using their, uh, it was proprietary software that they built themselves, but it was better than most of the stuff out there because it wasn't built by a tech firm who thought they had to build something that did everything. They knew exactly what they did with their clients, and it mm. worked. And they used it to communicate with their clients. So technology has a real future value. To me, that the one thing that people get hung up on is bespoke advice. Yes, the client gets bespoke advice, but so much of the support part is just doing repetitive tasks. So use technology to take that time or shorten that time, make it easier. As I say, I cannot see a reason today why a client would resist filling on an online fact find if they felt secure with the company. And then the advisor is fully armed. They're not spending the first hour asking questions and the five minutes telling them about their business. Their first meeting will be productive for both the advisor and the client. And that's where technology has to be. Onboarding of clients is expensive, it takes time. It has to work for all parties and mm. wasting an hour so if you historically sitting in someone's front room or in their office taking the asking questions is stupid today that really has disappeared and people will change the way they look at things
0: and um, just going to come to rohan before we wrap up uh, rohan how um, sort of concerned? How worried are people in the next gen planners um, group about you know technology and making sure their you know businesses are as efficient as possible? I know that there's there's always lots of very supportive conversations flying around about you know how should I do this? How should I do that? Is technology a big part of that, or conversely, do you think it needs to be an even bigger part of it?
2: Huge part of it. There's a full channel in within next gen that's dedicated to technology and um, because it is just part of the conversation i guess that's kind of a little bit natural average age and membership being 35.6 um mm. but it, it's you know the, the the vast majority of the people in there are incredibly tech savvy and um, and are just looking for the next thing to 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 to, to improve the business and um, you know from from real quick wins like installing calendly for your diary appointments and stuff like that. you know just just the real like quick easy things that just take so much time out of process of going back and forth, etc. Et, et and um, tech is a, a, an, absolute huge focus of it. And um, I think we polled a few members recently and I, I, I feel like, I feel like we've all agreed a lot today, by the way, this has been a very, <laughs> it
0: has been a remarkable amount of consensus. Well done everyone. Um, <laughs> and
2: and uh, I'm, I'm also going to, go, going, going to do exactly the same. And um, yeah, I, I, I would say that our members agree with um, the biggest frustration being this onboarding process and rekeying of data and all of that kind of thing. So same challenges with everybody, I think. Mm. Um, but hopefully tech will tech, will get there.
0: Mm. Okay. Brilliant. Um, I'm aware we've been going for about 45 minutes. which was astonishing. The time has absolutely flown by. So I'm going to close, if you don't mind, by asking each uh, of my guests what the key priority should be in closing the advice gap, uh, and they're only allowed one word as an example, uh, as an answer. Sorry. And if it's if if the answer is the same throughout, then fair enough. Then we've then uh, we've established more consensus. Um, but Ruth, it falls to you, I'm afraid, to kick us off. So what is your one-word answer? Technology. Technology. Alan. Technology. James.
4: <laughs> the
0: process. Process. Claire.
5: Succession.
0: Ooh, Rohan. Thinking. Thinking, okay. I'm, sorry, In- but I'm, I'm, I'm going
2: to go with technology. I'll go with technology as well. <laughs> okay. okay.
0: <laughs> cool um thank you very very much everyone for taking the time out of your days um to talk to me i think um i think that was a really really interesting chat and um i'm so so pleased in particular that we've had such a range of voices um and perspectives on the profession um you know from large and small and you near know, from different angles and stuff so um huge thank you from bottom of my heart for that um i'm going to close up and say that i've been ollie smith and this has been a special new model advisor podcast on the advice gap if you want to join in the debate online please do you can tweet us at new model advisor or do write into the team with your thoughts uh, or any experiences on this topic the email address is news at Uk. that's been uh, us for now thank you very much for listening see you again soon